Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We are really glad that you're here for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got your stool ready for you. We actually do have a good martini, but you're going to have to wait for it just a moment. We're going to do one of the bad martinis first. And Jim, as most people might suspect, it's Biden's speech from yesterday afternoon, which he was ridiculously late for again, but uh, it wasn't worth the wait. We got a lot of the same rehashed, poorly uh, laid out arguments, just not true in most cases, um, and just, just frustrating all the way around. He's basically given the same speech a number of times now, only this time he has called the uh, evacuation a tremendous success. I'm not sure it's credit to him. There's still Americans there, so you can't call this a success. I don't know how you can crow about that. But uh, the the rest of his arguments were just contradictory in many cases. Here's an example. First of all, he talks about how he decided to end this war. In April, I made a decision to end this war. As part of that decision, we set the date of August 31st for American troops to withdraw. Yet, just a few minutes later, he explained how it's Trump's fault that we're in this situation. My predecessor, the former president, signed an agreement with the Taliban to remove U.S. troops by May the 1st, just months after I was inaugurated. It included no requirement that Taliban work out a cooperative government arrangement with the Afghan government. But it did authorize the release of 5,000 prisoners last year, including some of the Taliban's top war commanders, among those who just took control of Afghanistan. He's trying to have his cake and eat it, too. Uh, It's great that we got out, and that's his responsibility. But if anything went wrong, it's the way Trump set it up. And the prisoners that were part of the the Trump deal that got released, that was really bad. I don't think we should uh, sugarcoat that. But so are all the prisoners that got released because we abandoned Bagram. Uh, But then, of course, Biden pivoted from what Trump did to this straw man argument that he refuses to give up. The previous administration's agreement said that if... We stuck to the May 1st deadline that they had signed on to leave by. The Taliban wouldn't attack any American forces. But if we stayed, all bets were off. So we're left with a simple decision. Either follow through on the commitment made by the last administration and leave Afghanistan, or say we weren't leaving and commit another tens of thousands more troops going back to war. That was the choice, the real choice, between leaving or escalating. That was his only choice, Jim. Either escalate or uh, or get out. So he, he had his hands tied, but it was totally his call to get out. But uh, what do you make of this nonsense? Greg, yesterday's speech by President Biden was appalling. It was outraging. And I think it was very dispiriting. And part of the reason for that last adjective there is just the recognition that we're going to be having arguments for years and probably decades to come with people who, based on these really absurd straw man arguments, that this is, they're going to be insisting that this was a great success. They're going to be insisting this is a great accomplishment. If you look around social media, you can hear people saying this is Biden's finest hour and and all that stuff. And it's, um, to, to walk around with that wild misperception, you basically have to 
just walk around utterly convinced and say that, well, this is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's okay that um, one of the world's most brutal and malevolent factions is back in power uh, in, just in time for the 20 year anniversary of 9-11. Uh, we're going to have a humanitarian crisis that is off the scale. Uh, countries worth of women are now back into oppression. Um, Biden's defense really relies heavily on this. We can maintain our over-the-horizon capacity to strike at terrorism and things like that. Well, there's a report, I think it was the Wall Street Journal today, we've, we've lost about 90% of our intelligence capabilities on the ground because we don't have an embassy. We don't have military bases there. We don't have places for our people to operate other than the occasional safe house here and there. Um, he said Al-Qaeda is gone. Al-Qaeda leaders are coming back out in public and showing up on social media. Uh, if you pay any attention to Islamist networks and chat rooms and stuff like that around the world, they're thrilled. They think this is the best day since 9-11. They have this enormous burst of, of momentum and excitement. And, and you know, um, our allies are furious. Our allies feel like we've you know, absolutely stabbed them in the back. The Haqqani network, terror for hire network, they're now running Kabul. Um, China and Russia are laughing so hard they're peeing themselves. And yet Biden keeps insisting that the Russia and China wanted us tied down in Afghanistan. They wanted it. You know, um, he never acknowledges, you know, China's efforts to get access to the rare earth minerals and things like that in Afghanistan. Um, and of course, finally, he really glossed over the number of American citizens and green card holders who are stuck behind Taliban lines other than a line or two about, well, they got 17 email warnings going back to March. He did not mention that Joe Biden's on July 8th said that it's not like you're going to see the Taliban take over the whole country very quickly, that it was very highly unlikely, and that uh, the U.S., uh, that the Afghan army was the best equipped, best trained, and most competent on the battlefield force out there. So Joe Biden is angry that people did not heed State Department warnings that contradicted the rosy assessment that he was announcing to the world from the White House. That's where we are, Greg. And he's going to get away with it in terms of the media, right? I mean, the media has been pretty tough on him the past couple of weeks, but uh, he's pivoting now. Uh, Politico just had an article today pivoting back to COVID, to the domestic agenda, the massive spending bill that he wants to get done here. And I don't believe that the media is going to keep uh, on the drumbeat for the hundreds of Americans that are still there. Maybe they will. Maybe some reporters will. But it, uh, there seems to be a shift as soon as that plane left Kabul from from criticizing and critiquing this administration to kind of going along with the narrative now. What do you see? Yeah, I think you're right. This was really tough for about two weeks. And now the media is ready to turn the page, to shift, to take their foot off the gas, um, in part because yeah, I, I suspect in part because um, we've seen the effect on the president's poll numbers. And perhaps they sense that at some point, this starts having an effect on the 2022 midterms. Um, geopolitically, militarily, socially, morally, this is a humiliating defeat for the United States. And if you are a Democrat or really anybody who saw Biden as the antidote to the Trump era, um, this is embarrassing. This is mortifying, right? This is the guy who was supposed to replace Trump's chaos and he was supposed to bring back order. And in the end, Joe Biden is just a different kind of chaos. So acknowledging that Biden has utterly and completely failed in one of the biggest decisions of his presidency. For these folks in the media, it would mean acknowledging their assessment of Biden in 2020 was wrong and that the critics were right about him, at least in some ways. And everything from the way he sees the world to maybe his ability to handle the job and things like that. And my, you know, that I think what we're going to see in the coming weeks, Greg, is going to be a rapid effort to 
figure out some way to convince people that if Afghanistan is a humiliating defeat for America, that really it's the fault of Republicans. It could be the fault of Trump. They'll blame Bush. They will blame everybody in the whole wide world except Joe Biden, who actually was making the decisions over the past couple of weeks. We got not Sleepy Joe yesterday. We got Shouty Joe. So anybody who disagreed with him, he was basically, basically reaming you out yesterday. I'm sure that was a, a good tone. Anyway, let's talk about something better than that. And uh, and that's the fact that Jim is really comfortable right now as we do this podcast. And he writes his morning jolt and other work. And that's because Jim gets the uh, the privilege every day of working while sitting in the X chair. You know, the only thing in my life that's comforting right now is the X chair that I'm sitting in at this very moment. Um, you know, look, at if you... I don't know whether your life is feeling particularly stressful right now. Chances are it is. You're going to, my attitude on this has always been that you're going to spend a lot of time in your chair if you work at your desk. It's just a, just a fact of life. And this is not something where you want to skimp. This is not something where you want to make do with a chair from the kitchen table or something like that. You want something comfortable. You want something reassuring. You want something that's got the lumbar support and, and you know, let's say the X chair with the temperature regulation, the ability to heat, the ability to cool, the ability to massage. Trust me, you're going to want this. You're going to need this. This is just one of those things that just makes life a little bit easier to deal with at times when it's not all that relaxing or easygoing. So, you know, no matter what else goes wrong in life, no matter what else is hitting you the wrong way, your ex chair is there for you. You can count on and it works exactly the way you need it to when you need it to right underneath you. It just doesn't get any better than this. It's fantastic. It reminds me of Steve Martin and the jerk. All I need is this chair, but this chair is way better because it's got patented dynamic variable lumbar support. It was already best in class. And now with its Elemax technology, your comfort is guaranteed. Just imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. Man, go to xchairmartini.com now. That's the letter X, chair, M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com or call 844 844- for X chair and save $100 on your order. X chair has a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 per month. Go to xchairmartini.com now and use the code XWheels for free X wheel blade casters. xchairmartini.com. All right, Jim. Well, while many on the Democratic side of the aisle want to move on and the media seems to be going along with that, there's one Democrat who is not ready to move along. Sadly, he's not in much position to demand anything uh, different from this administration. He's not in office. It's uh, Jim Webb, former secretary of the Navy, one-term Virginia senator, briefly ran for president in 2016 and was the only person who was uh, remotely rational in that first Democratic debate on stage, which included luminaries like Martin O'Malley and Lincoln Chafee, along with uh, Hillary and Bernie there in 2016. But uh, Jim Webb is not happy with this administration. He has recently written for the National Interest. He goes on to say, in Kabul, America's capability to conduct an orderly withdrawal from Afghanistan turned into a disgusting nightmare of incompetence that can only be rectified by holding those responsible accountable. A midnight abandonment of America's most important airbase in Bagram on July 2nd put a double hex on a proper retrograde from the country, first by giving up a large-scale aviation platform whose massive runways and extensive outer perimeter made it eminently usable and defendable, and second by allowing the Taliban to release thousands of rabid terrorists who had been imprisoned there and were now on the loose. He says there's got to be an accountability. 
Congress has the job to do that, and he's incredibly skeptical that anything serious is actually going to happen. Uh, I don't know that he says this specifically, but probably because the president's own party will control the investigation process. So, Jim, uh, we've talked about how Seth Moulton uh, spoke up as the uh, the president uh, failed to rescue our Afghan allies and so forth. Uh, what do you make of Jim Webb laying the boom here to this administration? Well, we shouldn't overstate Jim Webb uh, being critical of this. And in fact, I, I hadn't thought about Jim Webb in a long time, but Jim Webb is exactly the kind of Democrat who would be rip-roaring, spitting furious about everything we've seen over the last two weeks or so. Um, that you know, presidential campaign lasted for about 10 minutes. Uh, yeah, that one debate where he discussed killing someone in Vietnam and um, many Democrats were horrified that he could absolutely have such pride in his, you know, not just his military service, but in the fact that he had killed in combat. And, you know, like they, you, you could tell that he had, you know, not, uh, he was no longer really at home in the Democratic Party. And I think Jim Webb was, you know, he was a Democrat because he was livid with the way George W. Bush had conducted the Iraq war. That's what made him run for the Senate in 2006. And even once he was in the Senate, he was kind of out of step. Maybe he was pro-union or, or, or you know, not necessarily a, a down the line free marketeer. But I think Webb's viewpoint towards everything from a variety of cultural issues, gun ownership, to just kind of that this concept of national honor uh, just puts him very much out of step with the rest of the Democratic Party. So by itself, it's not shocking. That's it's still really good to hear somebody come out and put it this bluntly, this plainly, this directly, um, and in some ways this brutally. And maybe the Seth Moultons of the world, that there's a little bit left of this in the, in the Democratic Party. Democrats really hated being to the 2004 election where George W. Bush uh, beat John Kerry, swift boat, boat vets for truth, the perception of windsurfing, out of touch John Kerry and haughty and, and all that kind of stuff. Democrats really resented the idea that they were not the party of the military. The problem, though, the problem is that the military ethos, the military's attitude, the, the kinds of people who end up going into military service, in a bunch of ways, they're kind of fundamentally conservative, just in their outlook on life. It's very tough to be kind of a kumbaya, we're all the same cultural relativist, one's as good as another, who are we to judge? You, you can't really have that mentality in the military, because one, the military, they, they, at the core of their competence is to confront an enemy and, if necessary, kill them. And the second aspect is that the entire, so the military can't be globalist. It cannot see one country as being as good as another. The military only takes an oath of office to one flag, right, or an oath towards one flag. And the second thing is that the military is just not, um, just not an institution that's going to uh, see itself. Uh, we've seen this effort to try to make it wokeism and all that kind of stuff. But in the end, the military is an exceptionally traditionalist institution. It is proud of its history. It is proud of what it has done. It always wants to improve, but it does not look around looking for things to change just for the sake of changing. It will focus on what works. It focuses on results because if you don't, people die, right? That's why they're not, you know, oh, let's, you know, let's paint our tanks purple because they look prettier, you know, stuff like that. So in the end, it's, you know, it is good to see this bracing cold water of, of Webb's statement. I hope um, I think Webb does speak for a lot of folks who are veterans and who may be almost apolitical or much less likely to get worried about the day-to-day -day politics and stuff like that. I think that there's the sense of um, an assault on American honor is, is kind of at the, the core of him. And that's, 
Uh, hopefully, his spreads his his you know message spreads wide wide, and and maybe there'll be some accountability for this administration. Well, we'll see what happens here. There were some committee chairs as this crisis uh, was really ramping up that said they wanted to conduct these oversight hearings. We're in the August recess right now, so. Um, we'll find out, or summer recess, I guess we're in September now, but uh, we'll find out how serious they are when they come back and uh, how soon and how thorough these investigations are. Uh, Jim, just as a coda to uh, Afghanistan, because we actually are going to talk about something else in the final martini, I don't know if you saw this uh, report from Reuters about this call between uh, Biden and the former Afghan President Ghani on July 23rd where Biden says uh, there's a perception problem. He tells Ghani, I need not tell you the perception around the world and in parts of Afghanistan, I believe, is that things are not going well in terms of the fight against the Taliban. And then Biden says, and there is a need, whether it is true or not, to project a different picture. Jim, (laughs) I mean, could you at least send an email then to the Americans in Afghanistan saying you really, really, really need to get out? Yeah, the significance of that is that it means that the message that had uh, been saying July 8th, clearly, you know, certainly by July 23rd, the president no longer believed what he had said uh, about two weeks earlier. But the second thing is that, you know, this idea that, like, it may very well be, we had this complaint during the Obama years, and I think you can even say this applied at certain points to the Trump administration. People in government who got there because of campaigning see everything as a perception problem. You talk about uh, Obama to Obamacare and say, look, you know, uh, we have a terrific program, but uh, people just don't seem to understand it. We haven't, we haven't done the right job selling it. No, no, the problem is the program's not that good. <laughs> it, it's the uh, the old joke about the, you know, guy who doesn't buy a particular brand of dog food. And uh, the ad agent, you know, is furious. He says, well, why are you not buying this brand? Says, My dog doesn't like it. In the end, the problem is the product, right? The problem with the Afghan government was not something that could be glossed over with a press conference um, that uh, the, with the Afghan leaders backing a new military strategy or something like that. It's really kind of unnerving. And again, you know, I can't help but remember all the times we were told back in January, Greg, the grownups are back in charge. Wow. And the fact that the left and the media are just trying to move on is amazing. Let's not let them get away with that. All right, let's move on to uh, my pillow. My pillow is fantastic. Not just the pillows, the sheets, the towels, the slippers, everything. Look, there's nothing better than slipping into bed with soft, comfortable sheets at the end of a long day. And lately, they've been very long days. And now, my pillow wants you to sleep better with their Giza Dream sheets and enjoy deep discounts on their wonderful slippers, too. For a limited time, you can receive 50% off any Giza Dream sheets with a price as low as $49.99. And you can get 50% off of my slippers. I don't mean my slippers that I'm wearing right now. I mean actual my slippers of the brand. Imagine sliding into the most comfortable sheets you will ever own, guaranteed. They're made from the world's best cotton, grown only in a region between the Sahara Desert, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Nile River. Its long staple cotton makes it ultra soft and breathable. It's available in a variety of colors and sizes. They're machine washable, and they have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. Now, before slipping into those dream sheets, you're going to have to slip out of your My Slippers, which will be a little bit sad, but at least you get to sleep on the sheets then, because the slippers are great. Two years they took to develop these slippers, designed to be worn outdoors or indoors all day long. They're made with the My Pillow foam and an impact gel to prevent fatigue as you're walking around. And they're made with quality leather suede. You will not be disappointed. 
But for a limited time, you can save 50% on all Giza Dream Sheets and my slippers. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener's square, and use the promo code MARTINI at checkout. Or call 800-874-0104. You'll also find deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, the MyPillow towel sets, and so much more. Don't miss the sale of the year. That's MyPillow.com. Promo code Martini or call 800-874-0104. Sleep better with MyPillow.com. All right, Jim, let's talk about the pandemic a little bit and uh, back to the push for vaccine approval. Of course, we just got the full approval on Pfizer. Now they want approval for their booster. Moderna is looking for full approval for its vaccine and so forth. But we've got a problem now at the FDA. Uh, This is from uh, Zachary Brennan over at Endpoints News. Two of the FDA's most senior vaccine leaders are exiting from their positions, raising fresh questions about the Biden administration and the way that it's sidelined the FDA. Marion Gruber. I didn't know the Gruber brothers had a sister, but there she is. And I guess she's uh, more ethically pure than they are. Director of the FDA's Office of Vaccines, Research and Review, and a 32-year veteran of the agency will leave at the end of October and Deputy Director Phil Krause. So the director and the deputy director, uh, Krause has been at the FDA for more than a decade, will leave in November. The news first reported by BioCentury is a massive blow to confidence in the agency's ability to regulate vaccines. And so, Jim, it seems like, the, I don't know how much is documented here, but uh, a lot of folks feel like the politicians got ahead of the researchers and the scientists on when the booster shots could be ready, approval for the booster shots and things like this. And, um, you know, politics seeping into this process is never good, but politicians have uh, earlier timetables than scientists a lot of the time. So how do we process this? Yeah, I mean, look, by itself, scientists disagreeing with each other is not the biggest deal in the world. But that having been said, the fact that people are upset enough to resign or retire early and are kind of speaking publicly and openly about this. Look, I understand it's a pandemic. People are going to be forced to make uh, very different change. You know, they're going to have to make decisions on the fly. They have to make decisions based in terms of, you know, data that's still coming up. Um, throughout the, you know, on a whole bunch of episodes of this podcast, I've discussed about how our response to the pandemic is moving at the speed of bureaucracy, particularly at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, while the virus is moving at the speed of the virus and mutating at the speed of the virus. So the challenge, the problem we need to solve is changing rapidly, but the solutions we can apply to it change very slowly. That having been said, you can understand it does really feel like the CDC has basically become um, kind of a repository of all power in our government, uh, you know, not just because of things like the ev- eviction moratorium, and that the CDC believes in this crisis, which is now in its 20th month or something like that, that it basically has far-reaching powers to regulate any aspect of, of uh, American existence. And that's not the way a constitutional government was set up to do. And there seems to be real tough questions about accountability here. We're not going to get it from the president of the United States. And it's very unlikely we're going to get very much accountability from a Democrat-controlled Senate and a Democratic-controlled House, because nobody wants to go up against the CDC and say, you know, I think you guys are making the wrong decision here. Now, in this case, the two people at the FDA are willing to come out and say, no, I think you're making the wrong decision here. And, you know, in fact, you're kind of overstepping your bounds. You guys are supposed to handle that kind of stuff. We're the FDA. We're supposed to handle the applications of drugs. But, hey, you know, we're in the very best of hands, Greg. Jim, we could do this on almost every story, and we often uh, say at the end of a, of a story like this, 
What would have happened if this was a year ago? We're in the middle of a presidential campaign and the top two vaccine specialists at the FDA uh, would have said, you know what? We're getting too much political pressure. Uh, We're going to resign. We just don't uh, think this is the right way to go about this. You think that would have made some headlines and some mainstream outlets? Uh, No, Greg, it'd be a minor story. Local crime (laughs) story, the Post might say. Unbelievable that this is not uh, banner news just about everywhere right now. But uh, Jim... While the administration tries to, on the one hand, memory hole what just happened over the past several weeks with Afghanistan and more, and on the other hand, try to celebrate it, which is just utterly bizarre, uh, we'll keep chronicling the facts here uh, and we'll uh, keep on top of it starting tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. Super grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. We're very grateful for those. Uh, Also, remember to get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday, and please join us again Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit DanaRadio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.